welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, I'm here with Pastor Richard Harmon, and um, Richard is the pastor at Mitchell First Baptist Church. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And I know Mr. Harmon from Compton Heights. He was a pastor at Compton Heights in the inner city, um, St. Louis Church, when I was just a young fella. I guess that was in the 70s. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Se- 75 to 79. Okay. And then I recently uh, was with um, Mr. Harmon here at his wife's funeral and was impressed by your pastoral way with your congregation. And I was, I was impressed with your congregation, too, as you guys went back and forth. And they seemed to be, the impression I got, a mature congregation. Um, as, of, as people who have been well cared for and pastored well. And so that struck my interest to want to talk with you, Richard, as well as just knowing you from my past and wanting to get to know you from more of an adult viewpoint, um, because at that time I was, you know, pretty young and had, I remember certain things. I remember seeing my first video game at your house, it was Pong. <laughs> I remember you showing us your um, calculator, which was a, a new thing. It may have been like a scientific type of calculator. Can we start with you giving us just a little bit of an overview of your life um, as, as far as, um, you know, what your, where did you grow up? What, what has your career been throughout the years? And okay. That type of thing. Um, I was born in St. Louis and lived in St. Louis, North St. Louis, until I was 10 years old and my parents moved to Greendale, which is near Normandy Golf Course in St. Louis County. Um, I went to elementary school in the city of St. Louis at Emerson School until I was 10, then I went to Normandy schools uh, and graduated from Normandy High School in 1960. Uh, The uh, school graduating class, I think, is having its 60th anniversary reunion this year, so it was some years ago. Um, I went to Washington University and graduated from there with a degree in mathematics. I had a commission in the United States Air Force. This was the Vietnam era and was, went into the Air Force in, 19, in June of 1965. Um, because of my uh, mathematical and scientific background with college, they said that I would uh, qualify to be a, uh, uh, get training as a weather officer, and they sent me to Penn State University and uh, State College, Pennsylvania, in 1965. And uh, it was a one-year program to learn about uh, weather forecasting from a technical point of view, theoretical point of view, and uh, graduated in 1966. Uh, and my first uh, weather duty station was at Wichita, Kansas, at McConnell Air Force Base. Um, my wife and I married in 1964, uh, May 23, 1964. I met Carol uh, at the Hanley Road Baptist Church. While I was a student at Washington University, a friend invited me to his 
church, and they had revival services. I, uh, my parents sent me to Protestant churches, Presbyterian as a young person, uh, uh, and also the Methodist church when we moved to the county. And so I had a vague idea of what it meant to be a Christian and uh, to know the Bible. And so I had many questions uh, um, about the revival and the excitement that Baptists had about the personal faith in Jesus Christ and talked to the pastor during the revival about that. And he lent me his Bible and said, well, if you'll go home and read the Gospel of John, he told me where that was, I found it. And uh, uh, before you go, say, uh, God, tell me whether this is uh, true and I should believe it and do something about it, or if it's something I should just throw away. And by the time I'd read through about three or four chapters, I knew that this was God's word and that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and I gave my life to him. Uh, that was in uh, February. <laughs> Pardon me. Of 1962. I met Carol at the church. And two years later, we were married. She was the love of my life. <laughs> We were partners in everything we did. I was a reserve officer, a reserve weather officer, and uh, that's in the Air Force. That meant I had a four-year commitment only, and uh, because Vietnam was going on, they had uh, uh, Air Force and the government had rules that if you had less than a year of service left, they would not send you to Southeast Asia. Uh, and so I came up to the point where I had less than one year left of my four-year obligation. And so I was looking forward to being discharged. And they came down with a program that said, well, uh, we're looking for uh, people who will cross-train as missile launch officers in the Minuteman missile system. And uh, there was a base at Weidman Air Force Base in Knob Noster, Missouri. And I asked, well, if you'll uh, send me there, uh, I'll... I'll uh, become a regular officer, sign up permanently, and uh, uh, by doing that, then uh, I'll be obligating myself to be this missile launch, launch officer. And uh, so that worked out, and in uh, 19, uh, 1970, we went to uh, Whiteman Air Force Base, and... Uh, we had to take some training in Chanute Air Force Base in Illinois and then at Vandenberg to learn the system and uh, the tactical use of the nuclear weapons for deterrent. And then I came back to the station there. We were members at the First Baptist Church of Knob Noster, and uh, I uh, had previously been licensed to preach in Wichita, Kansas, at our church that we were attended there and had the opportunity to be a to lead the music at the Nam Noster Church. Um, in 1972, as the Vietnam War wound down, they gave uh, a notice that people were being dismissed from the armed forces, and they said, uh, are there any volunteers who'd like to get out? And so I picked a Whiteman because I wanted to go to Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is in Kansas City, and that's uh, 80 miles away, and thought I might be able to commute or it'd be close that if I got out, I'd be able to go there. Um, 
And so um, in January of 1972, I took a month's leave, 30 days of leave. Uh, the courses at Midwestern were one month long. We went four days a week for, uh, uh, I think it was two hours at a uh, two hours at a time to get a credit for two classes. That was about the most you could take. And so uh, I took those uh, introductory classes and believed that I could do the material. And then I went back to my duty station. Uh, as a missile launch officer, we were on duty for two, two 24-hour periods, and then we had a lot of time off. And many officers were in the master's degree program through University of Missouri, that had classes on on the Air Force Base, and I said, well, I'm gonna try to go to seminary and drive back and forth on my off time to see if I found out in, in, enrolled in classes and it was impossible for me to um, go to class and get a grade and still do my duty. So when the regulation came down or information came down that people could be dismissed, I asked for my dismissal from the Air Force in 1962, and I was released in June of 1962. In about March of that year, a small church in Sedalia, Missouri, had me come as youth and music minister uh, at Emmett Avenue Baptist Church. And so we went there. Carol wrote down, and one of the things she wrote, and I read recently, that I got $35 a month. Hmm. And... Uh, that's all we had to live on from June until September when I started Midwestern and got the GI Bill. But we had a home, and uh, we were happy and doing a work and working in the church. And so I began, I was in seminary until 1975, graduated. Um, we were looking uh, to relocate. Uh, the church we were at was small and uh, paid not a lot of money. I don't remember what my salary was. It wasn't very much. Uh, uh, the church called me as their pastor. Their pastor left, and they called me as their pastor in 1970, pardon me, 73. But we were re looking to relocate in the St. Louis area where both Carol and I are from. And uh, actually, uh, Will, your dad and... Uh, uh, the principal at Solde, and I forgot his name, uh, uh, Dean Greer. Okay. Yeah. And uh, another man came up and interviewed us, and uh, uh, they were on the search committee and had me come down to Compton Heights Baptist Church. This would have been about May of 1970, uh, 1975. And so we... Uh, we went down and preached a trial sermon, and the church called me to be their pastor. As you said, it was an inner-city church on 3648 Russell Boulevard, if I'm not mistaken, in uh, the uh, Shaw neighborhood. Uh, and so we were there, and uh, it was exciting times. We did a lot of things. Uh, we had uh, interns called summer missionaries who would come in in the summer, and we'd have a vacation Bible school, and we had... Uh, uh, backyard Bible clubs. I remember your mom and dad sponsored one uh, in your neighborhood. Perhaps you remember that. Uh, and uh, you and Cindy, I don't remember whether Jeffy was, I don't think he was old enough. He was only one or two years old, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. had backyard Bible club down there and touched a lot of children uh, in the, on Nebraska and in the regions around and uh, told people about Jesus and uh, 
told him his story of his life and invited him to become, become Christians. Uh, I can remember we had Vacation Bible School. It was a really big event at the end of the summer. All these backyard Bible clubs, we'd go to the kids and say, we want to come, and we're going to have a big Bible, a Vacation Bible School at the church. It seemed like we had about 200 children. Huh. And uh, just as a kind of a tie-in, we had established um, this uh, principle that uh, college interns or summer missionaries would come and uh, they would work through our church. Um, in fact, after we left the church in 1979, uh, Fred Winter was one of those, and he met your sister. And <laughs> uh, we, Carol and I attended his, his and Cindy's wedding. I believe that uh, Reverend Wendy Sapp uh, officiated at it. Was a, it was a really wonderful event to, to see our friends and come back and uh, celebrate with Cindy. You might not remember it, but I remember it. The last Sunday we were at Compton Heights, I baptized your sister. I think she was nine years old. Oh, really? Wow. In uh, the you know the church has the sanctuary, but then there's the little chapel, and right. that's where the baptistry is. Did I baptize you too, Will? You must have. Um, I don't remember um, the details and things. Well, or, let's see. I'm, but you I'm would gonna, have been there. You would. I'm going to guess that you're going to be 53 this year. Yeah, or 50. Yeah, 53. 53. I think yeah. you're a year older than my son Rick, who's 52. Okay. I think he just turned 52. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yes, he just turned 52, and I think you were a year, uh, year older than him. I remember the great times you had with Jim Struby mm-hmm. uh, in uh, having RAs and playing a bombardment in the backyard behind the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the nursery mm-hmm. uh, that was over on Shaw, uh, was on uh, uh, Castle, Castleman mm-hmm. Street. Uh, and uh, um, did you have an older friend named John Dobbs or something like that? John Dodd, yeah. John Dodd. John Dodd. And, yeah, he's living in Tennessee now. Uh, it was a, a great time. We enjoyed the church at uh, Compton Heights was only modest in size. We ran about uh, 75 to 100, depending on what season of year and the particular occasion. And so uh, um, finances were a struggle, and... Uh, uh, the church was, uh, I would say, was in transition. The community at Shaw neighborhood uh, was about 30% uh, African-American, and the rest were white people, uh, lots of Catholic people. Uh, they had a Catholic school, St. Margaret's of Scotland Elementary School there, so the parish there was was sizable and had a long history. In any regard, uh, um, some... We felt some resistance uh, to the leadership we were giving it, going, and so um, I resigned from the church uh, because I took a job as a, a school teacher at Francis Howell High School, teaching math and physics. Hmm. We were there two years, and then a church over here in Illinois. Well, actually, a church in St. Louis called Valley Park, a Baptist church. Invi- uh, had extended a call that I would go there as a, as a bivocational minister. And uh, that was in 1980. In 1981, a church over here in Illinois extended uh, an invitation to come and be the pastor uh, over in Edwardsville. And uh, it was supposed to be a full-time church, but it was kind of a financial struggle. And uh, so we, were, we came and... Uh, Actually, the summer of 1981, and we were there until about 1984. 
it was 84, and left the church. Uh, I did interim and supply pastor work. I was an interim pastor at, uh, uh, it was an independent Baptist church out in, uh, out in the country uh, near Caseyville. We enjoyed that experience. And then the church here at, uh, at <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> in Mitchell, First Baptist Church of Mitchell, uh, invited me, uh, me to come as the pastor. This would be, we came at Christmas of 1985, and so we've been here 34 years. Carol and I ministered here at the church for that period of time. Um, the church is a, was a, a small church, about 25 or 30, and so it was a bivocational uh, church, and I taught at Madison High School, which is just south of Granite City. Madison is a community that was about 50 or 60 percent African American, and and some white. The school population was about 70 or 80 percent African American. I taught math, physics, and chemistry there, and taught at the school to supply financial needs. And we were here at the church as a bivocational pastor, or they call it a co-vocational pastor now, um, for. Uh, from 85 until, well, I, w I actually went to Madison, Madison in 82, and I was there until I retired from the public schools uh, uh, syst uh, system uh, with an early retirement in 1995 or 94, and then taught one year um, halftime in 95. Um, at that time, I was, of course, we were here at the church and had that ministry, but uh, I uh, taught at uh, SIU, Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville, as an adjunct or lecturer uh, in their math department. Uh, actually, I had a job with them starting in about 1984 till 1990 as an adjunct, and then did some other things at the university. And in 1995, I... Uh, entered a master's degree program in mathematics and uh, it was uh, an assistantship and then I taught and received my tuition and maybe some pay I don't remember and then also uh, attended class uh, to get a master's degree in mathematics. I <clears throat> I didn't finish that program but uh, after three years the, the school had me come as a lecturer on uh, a full-time basis or and sometimes a part-time basis <clears throat> um, so uh, we were there until uh, 2014 and took a retirement through there so I had retirement through the to the teacher retirement system which is the public uh, a grade school and high school system through the state of Illinois and then a retirement uh, pension from the Teach, uh, uh, the university retirement system is called the state university retirement system. And uh, still taught some part-time uh, till 2018, I believe, and then haven't taught uh, at, uh, at the university since then. Uh, in 2018 and 19, I taught at a Connect Christian School, very small school in South Roxana. We had, I guess there were like 18 or 20 students in the whole school, and I taught middle school and high school uh, science. I was there one year. <clears throat> and uh, uh, 
after school was over in 19, I mean, so 2019, I said I wasn't going to go back. It was uh, 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 a a great physical strain on me in order to prepare for the the students. And uh, I was getting up about four in the morning every morning to prepare and uh, they weren't doing much work, but I was doing a whole lot of work. So I, uh, I, didn't I asked not uh, they didn't ask me I told them I wasn't going to come back that was sort of providential because my wife Carol uh, began to be fatigued Uh, I it started uh, I can look back and say it started about uh, six months ago in June of 2019 and then in September 2019 she was coughing up up blood and we went to the hospital she was admitted to the hospital and they said her blood count was uh, at a level of 7.5 and it should be 12.5 so her red blood cells were only about 55 percent of what the capacity would be which means she was not able to get the oxygen to her cells through the blood definitely as easily and uh, uh, we uh, had already made plans to go see my son Andy and his wife Karen in Portland, Oregon after she was dismissed from the hospital. Then on Monday we flew out there for a week and we saw another friend in Southern California for a second week and came back. This would be mid-October. At that time uh, they said said there was something about Carol's blood that was uh, causing her anemia and fatigue and it was gradually increasing to the point where she was not able to walk any distance at all without being overly tired. Um, and so uh, they scheduled for us to talk to a, uh, an oncologist. And uh, we saw him at the very end of October. He said he looked at the blood analysis and he said there was excess calcium and excess uh, uh, hemoglobin, I believe that's pro- excess protein in her blood, did more tests and he told us at that time, Carol, uh, he diagnosed her with multiple myeloma, which is a cancer of the bone marrow that produces too much of a, a one molecule, just an overabundance of this one molecule called IG, IgM, interglobular monoclinic uh, uh, leukocyte. And I, I don't know for sure, but <clears throat> this, these large molecules in the blood were excessive in number, and they were uh, taking the place of or forcing out the red corpuscles, which caused her anemia. He said the uh, people who have this who are young can have a bone marrow transplant and change their blood over uh, in their, from their bone marrow because they get new bone marrow from somebody else. But she, he, they said she was too old for that. However, uh, he said uh, we can I- install two ports into your body. One port will allow us to add drugs at, uh, without any pain of it going in your arm or something like that. The port would be in her chest. The other port was a port that would bring blood out of her body. It would cleanse, us, cleanse it of those molecules, kind of like dialysis cleanses the blood of urine and then puts the blood back into the system. So they scheduled an outpatient uh, uh, installation of these two ports, and her heart failed and she died. This was... Uh, uh, December 5th, and uh, it's been very hard the last three months. You know, um, going back to your conversion, 
at that time, did you already know um, the basics of the Christian faith, of the gospel, of, of Jesus's death and resurrection, or um, was that? Well, I, you know, raised in a church and receiving education in Sunday school class for a child, you know, mm-hmm. I, I hadn't processed that very well. But when I read the Gospel of John, as I promised the minister I would, I could see that uh, uh, and understood that Jesus died on the cross to cover up the sin of anyone who would come and, and ask him to come in their lives and be their Lord. Um, I didn't. I, I'm sure I didn't understand ver, very much about the Christian faith and its obligations. But uh, when the revival was over, I came to the front and told the pastor of my decision. To, I believed uh, in the Bible, uh, the Gospel of John that I'd read, and that Jesus Christ was God's Son, that He died for me and rose again. And I uh, told him I wanted to commit my life to Christ, and then they baptized me that Sunday night, I believe, which was, you know, I was baptized when I was a kid. You know, I, I wasn't a witness to it because I was a month old or something like that. And he explained, well, this is the way you join our church. I said, okay, if that's the way, then I'll do whatever you say. Uh, uh, and so I was uh, immersed and uh, began a journey. It's been a journey of uh, sometimes more uh, more uh, committed, more Christian than other times, uh, and have learned a whole lot. What gives you confidence in the Christian faith? Well, uh, several experiences. Number one, I asked Christ to come in, and uh, um, I have experienced his presence with me during this time it's a spiritual experience uh, uh, it's a spiritual experience but he has confirmed himself to me in a num- number of ways uh, in the life of other people in the in my life in my wife's uh, Christian experience um, number two the Bible I in in, in studying it uh, in great detail uh, before I went to seminary went, uh, after going to seminary while in seminary and afterwards also, uh, the Bible is not a book of myths and legends, but uh, is an account of God's dealing with his people, and uh, uniquely so, written by people but who are inspired by God, unlike other religious books that uh, you know, claim to be divine but uh, don't, certainly don't measure up to the, uh, to the realistic character of uh, sinful, flawed men producing what they'd seen and heard uh, and uh, their experience with God, especially leading up to the the coming of God's own Son into the world, uh, is confirmed in my experience as well. And so uh, that's a second reason. A third reason would be uh, uh, his uh, presence in many other people, and they're living their life in such a way that I can see Jesus in their life their lives, uh, uh, reflecting who he was, both how how he appears in the Bible and how we see him in other people uh, as they try to imitate him and make him uh, present and Lord in their lives. So that uh, that, uh, 
these would be three reasons why uh, I've, I'm confident that Christ is real and he's in my life and uh, his word is true. Okay. So the spiritual work of God in your life and others, and then just the nature of the Bible, how it's a unique type of yes, thing. Right. And a very believable story, especially in the New Testament. It's written almost in some ways like a newspaper, although the four Gospels are not a historical account of Jesus per se. They're meant to be a, a telling of who he was and why he had why he had come and how his life has changed the world. Uh, not worrying about uh, necessarily uh, consistent details or recording every every detail in a uh, in a historical way like we do today when we record history, but telling the important stories about him so that we would know who he was and why he'd come. So is that how you account for like some of the minor little details that are sometimes different from one gospel account to another? It's like what they weren't trying to give like um, a type of recording like what we would think, but it's more telling the story in their own way. Correct. Uh, for instance, uh, when you look at the three so-called synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell the story of Jesus' life pretty much the same way. But time, sometimes the placement of the events that occurred on a particular instance are placed in different places. And you could see from that that the writer had a reason for presenting the story at that time that fit in with what he was talk, talking about and trying to uh, to explain to the audience he was writing, writing to about who Jesus is and why he had come. And when, when you look at the Gospel of John, it's written from an entirely different perspective. It's written from his, his ministry in and around Jerusalem rather than in Galilee. And uh, some would say, well, there are inconsistencies there. But, well, Jesus was a good Jew. He went back and forth to the important religious festivals of the Jewish people, and so he had... Whenever he went, he had contact with, with the Jewish people there and made himself known among them. And this is what John is writing about. He's writing, about, again, from the perspective of the, of the miracles, the signs of Jesus, seven great signs of Jesus that occurred because of his, his back-and-forth journeys in coming to Jerusalem. Uh, his own possession, the temple was his, was his father's house. It was his possession and the people there, hurting people there that he ministered to. Uh, for instance, John records how Jesus cleansed the temple near the beginning of his ministry. This was a sign and wonder. Uh, he was a single man, and he was calling for righteousness and justice, and that the temple shouldn't be a place of merchandise and uh, people stealing from, from folks so that they would uh, get money in the exchange of temple currency, and he cleansed the temple which was a sign that this was his house and it belonged to him. Uh, and this, you know, one person, how could they do that? Well, he had the authority and people shrunk back from that. Uh, he, uh, he, in Jerusalem, he came to the man who was, who was sitting by the Siloam fountain. I thought it was adjacent to the temple. It would turn out it was near one of the gates and some distance from the temple. But uh, the people believed that uh, when the water was stirred, the first one who could get into the, these heated uh, uh, mineral waters 
would be healed, and this man couldn't get in because nobody placed him in there. Jesus said, uh, pick up your bed and walk. By the spoken by a spoken word, he recreated within the man the ability to walk and ha have uh, uh, strength to uh, get up and leave. Uh, just as God spoke the world into existence, Jesus spoke this man to be a new created person in this physical way. Uh, and uh, part of what John brings out is this happened on the Sabbath, and so the uh, temple leaders said the person who did this was a sinner because he worked on, on, on Saturday, on the Sabbath day. And Jesus put what the Sabbath was about into perspective, meaning to help people and to rest and to commune with God. And there couldn't be a better thing than to heal a man on the Sabbath day and restore him so that he would have the chance to walk about, provide for a family, go to the temple and worship and things like that. You know, so you're, you were educated at WashU. Did, um, was there ever like a, a conflict with, you know, uh, your faith or the Bible and your education? I guess I'm thinking about like the first chapters of Genesis, the creation story. Was, um, I know your background's not biology, it's math, but um, what is... Is that something you've um, wrestled with, or, or how do you t take that, or uh, just your thoughts about that? Um, at Washington University, my training was a liberal arts degree, but it would concentrate in mathematics and science largely, Okay, physics and chemistry and math. Um, we had to take some classes in uh, history. I had a professor named Welton who was a Roman Catholic, and he emphasized the history in the Western civilization, um, and kind of left an open door for, uh, as a Christian man, as a Catholic man, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, an educated person could still believe and participate and uh, follow faith. Um, my focus uh, in my early years was on the New Testament, especially uh, the book of John, uh, when I first read it, and other books later on, um, and uh, the accounts in the Old Testament, although I, I had read some of them not uh, not thoroughly, um, were not as relevant to me in shaping my thing, uh, my feelings, or my belief as more modern the more modern accounts, which. Uh, have to be accepted as historical because they were written at a time when there were histories of the Roman Empire and the Greeks and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, I wrestle with uh, the creation story in the book of, of uh, uh, Genesis, quite frankly. Uh, one thing that um, that sustains me is that that's a poem. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a narrative. It's not a historical account. It's a poem. And poems are written in a poetic fashion in that they don't have to be exactly precise, but written in in, uh, in poetic language. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, although uh, this was in conflict to my wife's uh, belief in the literal uh, six days of creation, uh, a belief in that, um, I uh, I look at that largely as a not relevant 
uh, to me and in my thinking. It doesn't, I've resolved that uh, uh, what this is, is, um, uh, as I said, a, a poetic expression of God, the creator of the world and of all things in an orderly fashion, bringing about his crowning creation on earth as man made in his image and after his likeness, and that he wants to have, he desires for us to have a relationship with him. Uh, but then the fallen condition of man expressed in the story about Adam and Eve is experience that we, uh, everybody I've ever known is a sinner, and we've uh, turned our back on God and we uh, try to do good things, and none of that really works until we let Jesus Christ come into our life. And his sinless perfection, his blood has uh, blotted out our transgression and sin and, and made us acceptable to God. So you're fo- uh, I'm saying this, very frankly, I don't always tell this uh, to, uh, you know, about my, uh, you know, uh, the creation story and the uh, first and second chapters in the book of, of Genesis. I don't tell that to everyone. I, if someone asked me, I would tell them, but uh, um, uh, I... I deal with it in that way, sort of in a private way, and yet it's still valid to me. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Do you understand? I do understand. Now, now your brother was a biologist, he, right? And uh, have you ever talked to him about? Uh, I have him? recently, and so there's um, my hand is freezing up here. Go ahead. There's a teacher uh, at Wheaton College. His name's John H. Walton. I think that's. I think it's H. And he's into the um, Genesis, and he, he's written a commentary on Genesis and different books on Genesis. And in the mid-1900s, according to him, like a lot of um, literature had been discovered that was contemporary to Genesis when Genesis was written, and it gave um, a better, um, gave us a better handle of like how, how literature was used and what how it was meant to be understood and what it was trying to accomplish and so forth. And his thoughts from understanding that and comparing Genesis is that um, the author and how it would have been understood is that the, the focus is more on um, function rather than like how material things came into existence. So he said it would have been understood as like a temple narrative, as like out of chaos, God bringing everything to order, giving, assigning things their their place, and putting all creation into a good way, orderly. And then he, on the seventh day, he enters in like to his rest, and he takes up his abode to dwell in and reign over his creation. So... In his opinion, um, like we asked kind of different questions than what the purpose of the writing was for. So I've talked with my brother about that. Um, and my, um, I think my brother's um, view seems, I don't really have a strong view because I'm just kind of taking this from other people and I don't really have much to compare it to. But I think my brother's view is pretty similar to the way you expressed 
your view on on it. Um, this allows me to believe that science um, and the pursuit of science is uh, not something to be shunned away from. I have found many Baptist people to be anti-science. They don't. They're not biologists. Uh, they might be chemists or physicists, but uh, not, not. They don't really like science. They're suspicious of it and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, we know that there is, is some evolution because, for instance, these viruses that have come about were molecules that changed and became a new, a new virus. So, like, mm-hmm. hot item now is this uh, COVID nineteen virus, which evidently came into existence just in this last um, year or less because of a, a slight change in, in the character of its, uh, of its outer coating. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so uh, uh, the change of things uh, gradually, uh, very small changes are, are, are certainly happen, and, and we accept that, but... Uh, uh, I, I kind of feel like the development of life from single cells to multi-celled uh, 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 entities is kind of irrelevant uh, uh, to, to me in that uh, we're, we're concerned about uh, the beginnings of man and from then on. Mm-hmm. That's what we're really focusing in on, and that's the main focus of the a Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, uh, well, I don't know. That probably didn't express it very well. I understand what you mean. So I've tried to look at evolution from, you know, just on its own, um, not thinking what's well, got to be this way or it's got to be that way based upon you know, Christian, my understanding of the Bible. And it doesn't, um, it, it, it doesn't really fit, or there's answer, there's questions that, you know, I haven't found an answer for yet, and just thinking it's a plausible type of thing, because it's based on mutations. And I guess, statist- I mean, I guess theoretically, a mutation can be anything. And it can advance an organism, but it seems like statistically it might be impossible in that sense. Most mutations cause a deterioration in the in right. a person. Like, for instance, people with Down syndrome, this is mm-hmm. a mutation, and it, it, people are worse than they would be right. uh, uh, if they hadn't been mutated. But right. I, I can o- open up the possibility that perhaps... Uh, some mutation, maybe a very small amount, might add to the human species or whatever species you're talking about. Uh, Carol and I visited both the Creation Museum and also Noah's Ark in or, uh, reproduction in Kentucky. I don't know whether you've been there or not. I haven't. Um, I wasn't particularly wanting to go, but Carol wanted to go. First, we all we went to the Creation Museum and. Uh, and then we, uh, about two or three years later, I guess it was uh, 19, uh, 2018, we went to the, to, to the Ark. Mm-hmm. And uh, the moving force behind that was a, a professor named Ham. And in his, his explanation, he, he's laying open that when, uh, when Noah collected uh, different species to put in the Ark, they were of, 
of a, of a kind. That would mean like a family. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, he, w- he would say it would be reasonable that the ones of that kind could then mutate and change into the various gen- uh, 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 genus and species that make up individual types of, uh, of uh, beings. Mm-hmm. So he, he's even allowing for uh, evolution. Right. Uh, without having uh, a super abundant number of individuals in the ark, uh, maybe they had donkeys, and then donkeys after the after the ark experience became horses and zebras and all kinds of uh, equestrian type of animals. Right. So uh, they're they're not different, mm-hmm. but horses and penguins are definitely different. And, right. Uh, horse doesn't evolve into a penguin, or vice versa. And that 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 really helped me. That here was a a man who believed in the Bible literally, literally the uh, the Bible as it's written would then allow for changes, which uh, which seems very reasonable to me. Right. Yeah. And uh, in my experience, uh, the, the fact that it, how it came, uh, how, how God created. Up until the point that we had ten thousand years ago, the scene of our concern when humans are on the face of the earth that doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm uh, I believe God is not addressing that in the Bible. He has a different reason for giving the record mm-hmm. than trying to record all the different kinds of animals and how they came to be. And so I'm willing to say, well, you created it. How you did it, I don't know, but it was wonderful that it is. Yeah, that's all I care about. Other people might have different emphases, but in a practical sense, most people uh, would would be interested in that way, not not how, all the details. It would only be some anthropologist or scientist who would want to know every detail. Many of them do it for the purpose of then being able to discard God out of the whole picture. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are physicists, who, cosmologists who are very very religious and believe in God, just, uh, you know, from a a scientific viewpoint. I think I remember you making a track. This was at Compton Heights, and it was like a little thing you wrote and put together and maybe printed up. Do you remember that? Um, uh, when When we were at Penn State, Campus Crusade had come to our community, and the pastor arranged to have a training sessions on how to tell people to become a Christian. They were called the Four Spiritual Laws. Mm-hmm. I think this track you're talking about was probably of that nature because mm-hmm. uh, I had developed my own uh, way of ex- expressing it rather than the uh, printed material. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I imagine, I imagine that that was what you're talking about. And when uh, we uh, we uh, uh, did backyard Bible clubs and visiting in the neighborhood downtown, then we could pass that out and use that as a basis for saying that, well, this is what we believe. And uh, most people in the United States, at least at that time, had you know revered the Bible and had gone to church, but many of them didn't know that they needed to invite Christ into their life and make him Lord as well as Savior in their life. And so this track was designed really for people who had a quite a bit of spiritual background or training to crystallize 
this experience in their life and receive Jesus into their life. And uh, in a similar way, when you see billboards that just say Jesus, mm-hmm. it's ba- it, those are going to be helpful only to people who know quite a bit about Christ and have had an experience and a reverence for him mm-hmm. rather than the largely secular uh, community that we have today, maybe who have no... Uh, uh, no uh, spiritual training. They didn't go to Sunday school. They didn't go to vacation Bible school. Uh, maybe they're negative toward uh, Christian people. Uh, just to see a big, a big billboard that says Jesus, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. When it comes to... Anyway, it, that's probably what you're talking about. Now, I, I might have here something else that uh, I give of a similar nature. I don't have a calling card, but uh, when I make calendars every year, uh, when they make the calendars, I also have a series of Sudoku puzzles because uh, some people like to play Sudoku. Mm-hmm. And then I, I can, oh, you have, you want to play Sudoku? Well, I have that little thing. It talks about the church and gives an introduction. Hmm. And then on the back, it talks about how uh, the greatest gift of all is Jesus Christ, and in the very briefest forms, it goes through these same, the same process of uh, uh, men are sinful and separated from God, but Jesus came as God's great gift to save us. And uh, so I, you know, I don't have a calling card. I well, here you can have this. It has my information on it, and in a subtle way, if they read that over, they'll. Uh, They'll hopefully be touched by the gospel, and we can dialogue about it. Only about ten percent of the population likes Sudoku. Do you play? No, I think I've maybe tried it before. Many people say, "Oh, I don't do math." And I, I say, "Well, it's not really a math thing; it's just a logic game." Hmm. And I've even changed them. This one here is a more thorough book. It even has it that you can do it with letters, not just the numbers one through through uh, through nine. Okay. So it, uh, you can use that as a puzzle. And uh, anyway, uh, just as a hook, you know, catching men, like catching fish, you have to have bait. Yeah. For me, that's true. I, I'm, not, I'm not a salesman a type of person. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm more uh, reserved or introverted. And uh, if I have a way of striking up a conversation, then, then this would be a chance to do that. Well, tell me about the booklet. You you referred to it, and you were referring to it. In, uh, well, that's about all I remember, uh-huh. is um, that you had come up with the track. So I was just going to ask you a little bit about evangelism. And just something you said here just kind of triggered a thought, a question. We talk a lot about inviting Jesus into our hearts, but it's been pointed out to me before that the Bible doesn't explicitly use that those words, you know, uh-huh. inviting Jesus into, you know, your heart. Um, That's correct. It's uh, it does talk about the heart. They believe the heart was the seat of emotion, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe that's right. Maybe the bowels were the seat of intellect. They didn't know about the brain, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, uh, in uh, in. Uh, Technical terms, we would say the heart, per se, would be your mind. You make the decision in your mind, not not in the organ that pumps the blood through your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the Bible does say that uh, we, we must receive Christ 
uh, and the reference of John one twelve says, as many people as received him are those who believe in him and become the sons of God. So to receive Jesus means to realize that he's real and you ask him into your life. Mm-hmm. And you ask him into your life as Lord. When the person in in the New Testament times were baptized, they had the confession, Jesus is Lord, Uh Romans 9.10. As many as confess that Jesus is Lord, uh, God gives the right to become his children. I've forgotten the exact quote on that. Uh Right. Uh, You receive Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which means the resurrection is real. Uh, that the uh, then you'll be saved, right? Uh, I believe that's why John. Uh, I guess it's John ten nine or nine ten. I can't remember how the numbers go. Sometimes I do reversals. <laughs> okay. Um, so you really it seems like John is probably your favorite one. One of your favorite books. It, it seems like there's been a lot of mentioning of the gospel according to John. Um, I don't know whether it's a favorite or not. Um, it's kind of like what I'm working on presently. We've this past year or so, um, we uh, in from the pulpit. I've been preaching from the prison letters that Paul gave, uh, Ephesians, uh, Col- starting with Colossians and then Ephesians, and then we're working on Philippians now. Those are all very interesting. Uh, John, of course, tells the story of Jesus' life, and it's very inspiring. Uh, for a new, new, new person who's searching and doesn't have very much background, even for most people who just have a Sunday school experience, and I would guess that uh, uh, children who grow up in a church and then as teenagers they fall away, probably went to Sunday school very occasionally, not not regularly like you and your your family went every Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, even then, as children, they really are not going to learn much Bible. They won't know very much about Jesus' life. They'll know the story of Zacchaeus and uh, blind Bartimaeus and the woman with the crooked back. They'll, they'll know the story about Nicodemus. But they are not likely to be Bible scholars, per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm not sure how I got on this. Uh, oh, favorite book. Uh, John, of course, is very powerful. But when a person, my reason for getting on this is a, for a person that wants to know who Jesus is, I would recommend that they read Mark. Okay. Because it's the simplest gospel presenting uh, not Jesus' birth, but he came on the scene as this heroic person similar to uh, the sons of God of the of the Greek and Romans, like Hercules, was the son of Zeus, and the the people at that time could identify. We're looking for this hero who has the answer. Uh, from a Jewish perspective, this would be the Messiah, the Son of God. And uh, Mark starts out with John the Baptist starts preaching, and then Christ comes on the scene, and it tells his life in the simplest terms. Uh, uh, but uh, about 40% of that gospel talks about the last week of Jesus' life. So it's not a history per se. It focuses mm-hmm. in on the meaning of Jesus' life, and it presents how he came into Jerusalem uh, and presented himself, here I am, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God who came for you, and how he was uh, 
hated by the ones who were in authority because he was a threat to them. They were jealous of him. They were unwilling to accept this country preacher from Galilee as the Messiah. And uh, again, jealous of him, doing things that violated what they said were important uh, prospects or uh, things of the law, like working on the Sabbath day and so forth. Uh, he didn't knuckle under to uh, to the authorities, uh, the uh, the ruling uh, religious ruling group's authority. And again, they resented that, and so they were real good, righteous religious people, and they plotted his murder. <laughs> and so he died. But of course, then uh, the bio, uh, the gospel says that wasn't the end of the story. He wasn't defeated. He's not shamed, crucified, naked on the cross, but he's resurrected. And this shows that God endorses his son completely. And if anyone would find their way to know God and righteousness, it will be only through Jesus Christ. So I say Mark is the shortest gospel. It's 16 chapters long. I believe that's right. And tells a story in many ways, uh, Luke and, and Matthew, uh, w uh, their Gospels benefit from that as well with that outline and have similar, uh, the same story being told in different words, uh, perhaps sometimes for different purposes, but uh, it's a beginning place. Mm -hmm. But it's just a beginning, and so uh, all four Gospels are very valuable in the work of God's Jesus' spirit uh, uh, in the book of Acts um, also cho uh, shows the outreach to all men for God to save them and to make him his children. Why are you Southern Baptist rather than whatever else, Lutheran, Catholic, or Presbyterian, or whatever else you could I guess be? Uh, the experience of my life and that a Southern Baptist church invited me to come. They told me who Christ was. Mm -hmm. They were enthusiastic and knew their faith. They were uh, Christian young people who uh, were good examples, uh, and they, they cared about me. So that would be a strong reason why I became a Southern Baptist. Uh, I didn't know anything about Southern Baptist per se. It was this Baptist church uh, not, uh, it was uh, Hanley Road Baptist Church in Clayton. Many young people were in the in the uh, young people's department. Uh, uh, had a social a group of social friends, and while there, I learned about uh, this group of people is attempting to follow the New Testament as best as we can determine in our modern world. Uh, they believe the Bible. They uh, try to live it out. They know that Christ uh, was reaching, uh, especially after his resurrection, the spirit of Christ was reaching out to the whole world that they would uh, embrace God and know him. And uh, Southern Baptists were evangelistic, and they were trying to do that. Their mission program was sending out missionaries. We were praying for them. And so uh, I don't know if I'd have been exposed to a different group. Perhaps I would be more um, in tune with them, but that's what I learned. And uh, when I uh, graduated and received my commission into the Air Force, they sent me to Penn State for my meteorological training uh, to get a degree in meteorology. 
And while we were there, um, I went to a, a, a mission church. It was, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, State College Baptist Chapel. They didn't have a building. I came to see, well, the church is not a building. You, don't, you can meet in the park if you want to, but they met on Sunday, ni- Sunday morning and Sunday night in an odd fellows hall. They rented these facilities. Uh, on Sunday, they would go in and set up the pool room as a, as a nursery for the, for the children to uh, get diapered, and then uh, uh, infant beds were set up, and we had a large assembly hall and set up folding chairs and had a piano and uh, had church. Uh, and then on, I don't know where we met on Wednesday, but the, the prospect, uh, we were involved in missions. While I was a student at Washington University and became a Christian, the next fall, this had been, uh, uh, would have been, uh, well, it might have been, no, I don't know for sure. I think it would have been August of 1962. The uh, St. Louis Baptist Missionary uh, Association, which met uh, just off of Grand on Washington Avenue near uh, Second Baptist Church, near Third Baptist Church, uh, the the board had uh, called Bob Blattner to come as the Baptist Student Union director, and uh, this was at while well, I was Washington University, and uh, he uh, tried to develop and took with tremendous energy to develop uh, Baptist student unions with many the many uh, uh, colleges all around St. Louis. Uh, he would go to the nursing schools. He went to Barnes Nursing School and Jewish Nursing School. We went to uh, Missouri Baptist Hospital as nursing school and had uh, meetings during the week. And I went with him, and we went all over St. Louis. I didn't do very well with my grades. I was spending a lot of time uh, with Bob. They would, they would have a singing of hymns and choruses without any accompaniment and have a Bible study and... Uh, young people just meeting together and uh, uh, getting strength from one another in their college experience, and it was a great experience. So I guess uh, that's been, uh, through history, the re- reason uh, we've been at Southern Baptist churches and uh, believe in the programs of missions such as foreign missions or home missions called international missions and North American missions and the state missions and the local uh, associations. Uh, this seems to be uh, the way the New Testament churches were set up, not with an authority of uh, uh, people in charge di- dictating what others should, should believe and if they didn't like them, kicking them out, but the people themselves um, by their vote and their, their commitment uh, having churches and the churches working together to support each other. Okay. Do you have any thoughts about like how to draw the circle as far as those you regard as brothers and sisters in Christ? I guess that this is something that's been on my mind lately and would just like to hear your thoughts about it. I've been attending um, now and then a prayer meeting that meets up near our house and the other members of the prayer meeting are Roman Catholic. And I'm 
on one hand, I'm thinking um, that um, maybe it should be just something really simple, like the Apostles' Creed or something, which would just pretty much bring everybody in who's Orthodox at all into you know those you can share fellowship with. But there are some you know kind of <clears throat> seemingly strange differences you know between us and some other Christian traditions. But if possible, it seems that this this unity is something that's a, a New Testament type of um, teaching, like Paul, he speaks about in Romans, um, accommodating one another <clears throat> if they observe days or eat or don't eat and stuff like that. Well, I, I personally... Uh answer your question. I personally, anyone who uh, believes in uh, Jesus Christ as God's Son and in some way indicates that he is the, the, the one individual in their life that's guiding them, that's, that's uh, giving them direction. Mm-hmm. If they're willing to call themselves Christians, then I'm willing to... Uh, Acknowledge them as Christians as well. We have very many people who come were farmer Roman Catholics or Roman Catholics who attend this church here mm-hmm. uh, as an example. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I don't, I don't try in any way. I don't criticize other denominations mm-hmm. uh, b- because you know there are people that I can help here. I can be a brother or sister to in this church, but if you begin criticizing them or putting down their background or what they believe, then you're cu- cu- cutting yourself off from them. And so just focus in, in on what I believe. And I found that many Roman Catholics, when we talk about faith in Jesus Christ, well, yes, I have that. Some of them who were former Catholics will talk about, well, they're, uh, I didn't like that they had a hierarchy that dictated to us that what we did was wrong, and so we're excluded, particularly in the area of divorce. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I was raised Catholic, but I, I don't go anymore because I'm not really welcome in the church anymore. Well, as far as I'm concerned, as life unfolds, we are sinners. We make mistakes. If a person uh, in life, their, par- their partner who they thought was a life partner, that didn't work out, and they divorced for whatever reason, after a time, if they find another person that and they are, are going to commit, then I, I don't see anything wrong with a, a remarriage and uh, finding a new life because I, I think God wants us to have life partners. So uh, uh, yeah. 50 years ago, you know, this would have been a heresy. Oh, you, divorced people are just, just terrible people, and we would never let them have a... a Responsibility or leadership position in the church, they can come and give their money, but we're not going to let them teach a Sunday school class or might not even let them sing in the choir because they're divorced. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, yet uh, we are a, a Baptist church because I believe it's it's fundamental principles in saying this, we accept the Bible as God's word. We read it and he speaks to us through the spirit of Jesus to help us interpret it and apply it in our own lives today. 
in in a, uh, in a in an ongoing way is uh, is is something that we hold to. Uh, we don't acknowledge uh, authorities other than the authority of the church itself. So we don't have a hierarchy who dictate to us or own the facilities or anything like that that we might be afraid, well, if we don't do that, they'll come and take that away from us. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, it, would, it would be good for Christian people in their activities to be able to identify with other brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever church they go to. They might go to a different Baptist church. They might be Lutheran or Pentecostal or Catholic or Methodist or Presbyterian. They might be Eastern Orthodox. But wherever you are, for instance, in the workplace or in your community, to, uh, if you find people like that, that you, these are brothers and sisters, we can find a common ground. And that doesn't mean we're going to dilute what we believe and make it mean nothing. But, mm -hmm. but uh, we can have our difference of opinion. I mean, uh, they don't have to make me conform to what they believe. I'm not going to try and make them conform to what I believe in every detail. Most of the, most of the differences in the denomination are, uh, to my mind, largely trivial. They're not very important uh, when it comes down to that, especially when you find people of good faith and uh, a, a charitable character, whatever denomination, who claim the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I personally, I don't know about the, I don't know about the salvation of anyone other than of myself for sure. Uh, my wife, I believe. But for instance, uh, Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses are the main ones we might have trouble with who come from a Christian background and they have a different theology as to who Jesus was. I don't know whether they're Christian people. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it, it mainly centers on who they think Jesus is. Uh, the uh, Mormons, I believe this is correct, think of him as an angel, an archangel. He and Satan were created by God at the same time. Of course, I don't believe this, and it comes from the, what they think, but if, if somehow they are people who uh, understand that Jesus is is the avenue to the Father, then maybe they're Christian people too. I just uh, am not willing to accept their theology or their book as authoritative. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know about Mormons. I don't know about Jehovah Witnesses, but uh, in the most positive way I can, I hope they're Christian people. And they, they, uh, Jehovah Witnesses have the Bible. I think their original name was uh, Student student study group or something like this uh, and then became the watchtower hmm. okay well before wrapping up if i could just ask you about your own routines and that type of thing like are do you have do you have routines in your life that you find meaningful satisfying and if so what's that like well i have routines i'm a person of of uh, pretty much nature um when I get up in the morning, I like to check on the internet. I probably, uh, you know, in uh, the last year or so, I probably say, "Well, I'm I should be ashamed of that, spending more time with Jesus." But uh, uh, I guess I make excuse of that because uh, I get uh, email from uh, the American Bible Society, and they have scripture. Sometimes I read it 
Although I had, uh, you know, in that experience, I had, oh, I'll read that every day. It's a, uh, it's a psalm or a chapter in the Bible, and uh, uh, it's God's word. But checking in on what's happening in the world, uh, uh, checking my bank account to see if it's been raided and I don't have any more money, uh, seeing what the cardinals uh, have done or what they're doing. Um, and usually I start up, I say, well, I'm not going to do very much, and pretty soon it's an hour that I've spent on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Some of it not productive. Some of it is uh, the way the ads or the stories play out as I look at the headlines. They're, they're tempting and uh, lasacious, and uh, sometimes I'm quite frankly curious about, about that. I... Uh, feel ashamed about that but uh, anyway after getting going uh, usually when Carol was here I would arise by about five in the morning maybe four in the morning because I had uh, tasks to, uh, 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 when I was at the school I was doing uh, work uh, with each of my classes to uh, uh, to outline the material we were going to go over and have a narrative uh, that they would read, not just out of the textbook anyway. I was getting up 4 o'clock and doing some of that, but also looking at the Internet. Carol didn't r- arise until, well, she would get up at about 5 and take her medicine and go back to sleep, her heart medicine, go back to sleep, and then would get up about 7. Uh, I have a number of, of uh, pills and uh, supplemental drugs that I have to take, and... Uh, up until about uh, four or five months ago when Carol became ill, was spending a lot of time caring for her in her fatigued state, uh, I would take my medicine in the morning and uh, eat my breakfast. I cooked my own breakfast. She cooked her own breakfast. I always had oats, and I would mix that with bran flakes and Honey crunch and oats, which has a little cinnamon in it. I put in applesauce and raisins. Always the same diet, and if it wasn't the same, then it would be could possibly be an upset day because it wasn't the regular. Uh, eat eat uh, pieces of fruit. Typically, a piece of fruit. Uh, today, I had a banana. I had an orange. I was going to eat an apple, but I didn't have time because I was going to come and see you mm-hmm. have an apple. And sometimes they have a, a Roma tomato. And I drink, when I take my medicine, I drink two tall glasses of hot water. And then I have two more hot glasses, mugs of hot water that I take my medicines with. About eight, nine years ago, I had an esophageal problem. My esophagus was closing down. And uh, when I ate, the food would just stay there. But with hot water, it would go. I, I had to have an operation. It was called a Heller myotomy that uh, cut my sphincter muscle that goes into the stomach, and then they wrapped the stomach partly around that to close the opening somewhat uh, so that my food would go down. And that uh, I've only had to stretch my esophagus once or twice since that time, uh, which uh, then keeps things open. So drinking the hot water allows the food to go in and also helps to keep me regular in my bowel movements. So this is very important because if they get messed up, then uh, my whole system gets messed up as well. Um, now, um, 
uh, because Carol's gone, I have a lot more freedom in what I can get up. And my uh, uh, routine uh, is somewhat disrupted. I sometimes, well, I don't have time. I'm going to go and do something. I'm going to go see... I'm going to go see Will at the church, so I didn't take my medicine. <laughs> and, well, I'll take it at noon when I come home. Well, I forget about it at noon and forget about it and it comes to 10 o'clock at night or 11 or 12. I haven't had my medicine. Well, I'll just skip that day. And uh, I've uh, found myself skipping the medicines and the supplements that I re- routinely take about two times a week, which is not good, but uh, just whatever. Um I uh, I check in with some some of my friends here at church on uh, on texting and how they're doing and uh, uh, I usually have uh, some sermon preparation starting about Wednesday and then uh, on. A Friday and Saturday because I have to pick out the hymns and and then burn it onto a CD. I have to spend a lot of times uh, finding the hymns so that it's not the same hymns we sing every week and there's a, a variety. In addition to that, I also find sort of contemporary songs to put on the same CD. One to play before the church starts, church, church service starts, and when that's over, that's a signal. They're all supposed to come in and sit down or they're going to get detention. And then we have our opening song, which is the song I picked out and it's printed in the bulletin. Then we have a fellowship time around, and then I have one or two songs that play in the background at a reduced volume. So I have like nine or ten songs to pick out, four of which are put printed in the bulletin for Sunday morning. And uh, again, I have to check on them and to see if I have a CD of that or if I have to go to YouTube and, and call that up with an instrumental so that I can use that as an instrument, uh, instrumental accompaniment so that the people will, uh, will uh, uh, be able to sing. And uh, we don't have... We have a man in our church named Joe Lemus who is almost deaf. He can't hear. But he likes to sing songs that he's written himself, but he sings them a cappella, sometimes not on tune, frequently not on tune. Uh, Carol uh, loved to sing. She was not a soprano. She was an alto and loved to sing harmony. And so she would tell you she was she was not... A soloist, but no one else sang, and so she also had written uh, Christian words to contemporary songs, and uh, then she would play that on the piano, make a recording of it, and play that recording, and then she would sing with the microphone. Her voice was loud enough, and it was uh, read, and so she would sing special music too. Usually, I would have her sing before the sermon, as if it were special music. Sometimes I would have Joe sing for the special music. So, um, since she passed away, of course, we, uh, she's singing with the angels now. So I've lately been singing myself, which means I have to find an accompaniment that will play, and then I'll sing as well. And I've tr- tried to make a goal of singing her songs. She has written about uh, 50 songs. Hmm. And uh, some of them I can sing. They're sort of neutral. And some of them I can see that they were written from... a 
uh, autobiographical per perspective, they talk about her life, and then I just can't sing those. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe just one more question before I let you go. Just what are your thoughts about a life well lived? Um, just, you know, from your perspective of, like, what's the most important things? Um, most important. To live for Christ. <laughs> Pardon me. Sure. But to try and imitate him in my life. In spite of my frailties and my sin, he still loves me. It gives me more and more chances. Pardon me. I guess that's what I would say. Okay. Well, thank you, Mr. Harmon. It's been really good to talk with you. I appreciate your time. Uh, Carol was my hero. She did so much more than I, I ever hoped to do. It has her obituary. I don't know whether you got one of those. She yeah. wrote that song on the back. What is that one? Is it Beyond the Tomb? Beyond the Tomb. This, yeah. uh, the association had made up uh, uh, bulletins to be used during the, uh, during the service, and it was this front and the back, but then the in, inside had her obituary and also the order of service. This one has all of that, but instead of the order of service, it just has a, uh, uh, a place for me to make comments or thank you notes. For It was designed as a thank you note to people who had come or had given flowers at the, at the service. Mm-hmm. My point of giving you that is that here was just a brief summary of her life. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you. You can have that if you want. Okay. If you use a podcast app like iTunes, please give a review of Conversations About Life.